Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American composer, guitarist, pianist and vocalist. It is the founding member of Squirrel Bait, who also has played in lots of other bands, including Codeine and the Red Crayola and lots of others. But you'll find out more about that in this interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. David, it's over to you. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a very mid-sized city. I think it's the 16th largest city in the United States. And um, uh, when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, I'd been listening to The Who and Led Zeppelin and The Rolling Stones for a while. I'd played piano as a young kid and I started playing guitar when I was 12. And it suddenly occurred to me, this is around 1979, that um, all of this music that I was listening to seemed like maybe a decade out of date. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I should figure out what what's happening right now. Um, and so I started reading Rolling Stone magazine which was a time where people like Grill Marcus and Tom Carson were writing for it. So it was not uncommon in these first issues that I picked up when I was 12 years old to read an interview with Public Image Limited or the Gang of Four or even the, the Raincoats. I you know, remember a, a piece on the Raincoats. Um, and then it was kind of a quick step from there or a very short distance to, to realize that there were new wave and punk bands in Louisville they were all people who were about eight or 10 years older than I was at the time. But so when I was, uh, I guess, 13, I started playing in a new wave group called the Happy Cadavers. Uh, when I was 14, I started a group called Squirrel Bait that was more of a punk band. Yes. And Squirrel Bait eventually toured, released two records on Homestead, um, you know, uh, played shows with Sonic Youth and Husker Du and Big Black. And I mean, those were sort of our... Uh, you know the the guiding lights for us the guiding lights yeah because I'm sort of I was born 64 so I'm in my mid-50s now so I had that kind of period in the 70s of the glam hearing that glam stuff on top of the pops which was this kind of program on a on a Thursday mm -hmm. evening which was like really big and you know quite influential I think every teen would listen to it and it was very you know like you know it was only half hour of music I mean you've got to remember the UK only had three channels and one uh -huh, right you know, it was, it, everything was very small in, in here. So everything gets very, you know, like tense, you know, so there was a lot of novelty records. There was a lot of disco chart, chart stuff. And then there was the odd sort of band like Sweet and David Bowie that would, would appear and Led Zeppelin, obviously the soundtrack or the, the opening credits were that kind of, you know, uh, one of the Led Zeppelin tracks. So it was kind of, yeah, the seventies. To be honest, I didn't get punk because I was too young for punk, um, mm -hmm. and and even post punk, I didn't really get either. It was mostly the indie period of the sort of early eighties. But like you, as you said, during that period was quite interesting because I was probably listening to a lot of music that had already been and gone. You know, my, I was influenced by my brother who was seven years older than me, and he was into prog rock, so I was listening mm -hmm. to this. And he had the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper album and, and Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So I was listening to those records with great kind of excitement and, and wonderment, thinking, God, this is incredible. But, you know, they were sort of, they'd been, you know, they'd all been, you know, they'd been and gone. So it was kind of, the 80s was the decade that I suddenly, suddenly found myself thinking, actually, they've just, this band have just released a single and I'm right there at the same uh -huh. Time right. so that was kind of a different gig, isn't it? When you're when you're actually there rather than listening to rumors by Fleetwood Mac and you're thinking, well, this has been out for five years. Yeah, no, well, it it really blew my mind also just to to hear music by people from Louisville. Uh, you know that there were these kind of post punk groups like Circle X and the Babylon Dance Band and the End Tables, all of whom had released records, you know, self released singles and EPs, and uh, I mean, I feel like that just like set me down the path that, um, you know, that, that I'm still on right now. Like in, so, in some ways it's all post-punk uh, for me, you know, like because punk was a was kind of the authorizing influence. And even if I haven't uh, haven't made anything that sounds remotely like, you know, punk or early post-punk, 
in decades, still like that, you know, that, that was the relevant context for me for making music. That's yes. why I started writing music. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there was the punk period. And then, as you mentioned, those bands like Gang of Four magazine, you know, Peel and, and probably a few others. There was that post-punk kind of very sort of jarring sound, which I found a bit intimidating when I was quite young. But then in 83, the indie world exploded. And my God, did I embrace indie pop with the most <laughs> amazing enthusiasm. Because I've got, you know, like... 83 to 87 I think is the in indie pop years and that was the years mm -hmm. of the Smiths so there would be in a few bands that had been like Simple Minds U2, um, Echo and the Bunny Many Bunny Men had just come along and then they had just like obviously U2 went <laughs> massive um, though I thought Big Country were going to be much bigger um, mm -hmm. oh, that's so wrong um, but but it was the Smiths was the grand zero but but then you would sort of with Squirrel Bait that was quite an, a hard sound, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Scorbate came out of a hardcore punk scene, really a kind of like thrash punk scene of bands like Minor Threat or the Necros. Um, I mean, it's amazing how quickly all of this changed, um, almost from month to month. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the the sound the sound that was captured on the Scorbate is the records is the sound. Uh, essentially like of a hardcore punk band um, slowing down, um, uh, experimenting with songwriting, you know, tr trying to trying to do it differently somehow. Yes. And 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 bands at the moment at that time, like Husker Du or The Replacements were really, you know, I thought were like tremendous songwriters. And, you know, that that really opened opened up other possible avenues of expression. Yes, well, Huskadoo was sort of, I kind of, I can't remember exactly when they started, but it was, it was kind of, I can't remember them in 83, I can remember them a bit long later. So you managed to sort of capture quite a unique sound very early on, because a few years later, that the sound that you got on Squirrel Bait becomes quite familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Did you find I, I it? Think, I think I think so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of, you know, because you, you know, because I also had a little bit of enthusiasm for heavy metal. I love Black Sabbath, or Deep Purple, and I really love Motorhead. But mm -hmm. that kind of sound that I remember that we had a DJ called John Peel in this country, who was, yeah. you know, he was the person who played all the kind of new stuff and the bands that he would often play, who were thrashy rock often sounded like people who weren't quite in control of their instruments, which was a sound that I quite liked, rather than something that felt very studied and, and, and sort of calculated. So you managed to capture quite a, a, an amazing quality in, in, the, in the noise that you were making with Squirrel Bait. Thank you. I mean, we were kids, uh, really. I was 14 <laughs> years old when the group started. I was 18 when it ended. And, you know, I, I certainly wasn't the youngest person in the group, so... Yes. And did it take a while to get your, the sound together, so to speak? Um, no. <laughs> we, <laughs> weeks or months. It, it really, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's not, I mean, you mentioned prog rock. It's not like Squirrel Bait was the most technologically or technically challenging music to play. Yes. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how it all came together. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly, I mean, it came together from, you know, friends and people who went to high school together, playing together, and not from um, an imagining of a particular kind of group sound in advance of the group. You yeah. know, like every everybody just contributed what they did to the best of their abilities, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, it's funny. The nicest thing anybody ever said about Squirrel Bait when the records were reissued, other music in New York in their kind of... Um, weekly uh, list announcements of new records um, said, uh, you know, the greatest high school band of all time, which, you know, my, my response was actually, I felt like there were a couple of, you know, two or three high school bands in Louisville, Kentucky, who were better than Squirrel Bait, but, you know, like still uh, the stamp, the stamp of like high school band, um, uh, it, it, like is a meaningful way to describe that group. Yes, and with your, because you managed to get on a record label, which is often a big thing with Homestead Records. So at that stage, did you sort of look at the band as something that you felt was going to go beyond just kind of one album? Did was there any sort of, okay, this could this could run and run? No, there was no there was no envisioning that, and in, in fact, it did sort of like 
you know, fray and splinter and ultimately end because uh, two of us had gone to college elsewhere. So we were, you know, suddenly spread spread over three different cities. Yes. You know, the I mean, the context that we came out of was a, a scene where, you know, like a, a band would form, play its first gig a week or two later, break up a couple of months later. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, really, the, I, I didn't go into squirrel bait with this idea that like, oh, this is something that could develop over a long period of time. Right. You know, it's like, it's like, this is the band that I'm in right now. And uh, if I were in a, another city or wanted to make music differently, um, I, you know, like I would do that with different with a different group of people. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting because often, you know, with most people are in a band and it doesn't actually take off, does it? You know, they don't really get beyond their their world. So sort of being able to sort of get tours or play gigs, get on a record label, often is the dream that people want. So it's quite interesting that that you were quite no this is just kind of this is this is the band and i'm going to be moving on to the next project very soon yeah it wasn't there was there was ne there was never a sense though of like i'm moving on to something outside of music or outside of like you know some kind of like youth culture expression or or something like that R rather um uh yeah all of these styles were so in flux and like as i say these groups just changed from month to month so I, I I don't I don't think that there was any idea that like oh with squirrel bait like we've found a sound or or some kind of like <laughs> like signature you know group style or something like that. I, you yes. Know, the, every time we wrote a song, it you know like it sort of you know mutated. Yeah. Well, you know, because because having done this show for quite a few years now, I'd I'd slightly appreciated, but not quite as much as that most bands have that a five-year narrative you know they get together they spend a year sort of making some sort of noise and in mm -hmm. this country like i said john peel was the go-to dj that would play quite a lot of interesting and odd stuff not just thrash metal but indie or folk music or anything that sort of you know like uh, tickled his ear really and then that would get people a john peel session you know this is kind of one of those things at the bbc that people would have a, a day recording with someone from you know, it was a guy called Dale Griffith was the producer who was in, you know, the drummer with Mott the Hoople. And then, you know, they would then get the album, then there's lots of little tours, and then you get the tricky second album, then the band would split up. Whereas, you know, that was that's the kind of general narrative of, the, of of a lot of bands that I've interviewed in the 80s, you know, that. Right, right. And, the, you know, and in this country, there were definitely gatekeepers. There was, you know, like the music press of, you know, the NME, Melody Maker Sounds, and every city and town would have like a, an alternative indie night so people could get in their transit van and just drive over the country. And as you probably know, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very small country. So you can go from London to Glasgow and you think, oh, that's a long way. But in America, that's just pop into the shops, isn't it really? Right, right. But those, but the the three British weeklies I read pretty regularly throughout high school and, and maybe the beginning of college. And that those just absolutely fascinated me because they were so concentrated. And, and you know, and the fact that through reading them, you you got the the sense of the, I don't know, the centralization, you know, like uh, wh where whereas the geographic model that I had was much more of like hardcore punk fanzines, and you know, uh, the in in some ways the the more eccentric and far flung and out in the sticks and the more surprising, um, you know, that that a band came from some strange place in Texas or Oklahoma or something like that, you know, that, that was really meaningful. Yes. Uh, and, and, but this idea of like the three weekly papers, I, I don't know, just like following like what gigs were happening on a weekly basis in London, you know, was, was <laughs> just incredibly strange, you know, from, from where I was, from my vantage point. Yes, I suppose. And, and was it the case that you didn't really sort of play much outside your, your local town? Um, Certainly not not before Squirrel Bait had released an album. Um, I mean, we all of the gigs were within a hundred miles or something like that. Right. Yeah. No, and and it really was like an intensely regional music. I th I think that that's something probably something very different from um, I don't know a, a a lot of music in a digital era that you know that that's consumed and the artists receive feedback from from all over almost immediately. Although, I mean, at the, at the same time that I was beginning playing in bands, I was a fanzine editor and I, you know, I spent most of my time, you know, 
uh, as, as a teenager corresponding with people all over the US and Europe. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was also about this possibility of transcending uh, you know, one's location. Yes, and that's so important. I know it was very different in those days. It was stamps and letters and post boxes, wasn't it? You know, yes. Yeah, and yeah. trying and hoping that, that whatever you were posting didn't weigh too much to come to the UK and vice versa. So then yeah. when, when the band split, I mean, what, what then sort of was, because you were still very young at this stage, where were your, what was your next direction? Uh, I was next in a group called Bastro that, that also put out a couple of albums on Homestead Records. Um, John McIntyre, who I played with in a bunch of groups, including Gastro Del Sol, and who has later played in Tortoise and the Sea and Cake, was the drummer in Bastro. Um, there were two different bass players in the group. And um, yeah, that, that was a group that uh, made a couple of records and also toured much more extensively than Squirrel Bait. Yeah. So when I was 21 years old, I graduated from college. And the day after I graduated from college, Bastro left on its first tour in Europe um, that did, did wind up with shows in London at the very end of it. But, um, you know, tours at that time were kind of like, get in the van, you know, like <laughs> six weeks of shows, you don't need to know too much. Uh, you know, like the driver just like takes you to the next city. You might play 12 or 13 or 14 nights in a row. Um, and I've been writing about this. I've been thinking about it because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working on a new book uh, uh, called Good Night, The Pleasure Was Ours. That, that's a, a book about playing music on tour. Yes. Um, and uh, and the, the book covers an arc of 30 years of this in a kind of single unbroken narrative. In some ways it feels as if it's just one long tour with different musicians and tour managers and drivers and booking agents and people like that coming and going, um, even as the mode of music making changes. And uh, and yeah, so I've been thinking about this period quite a bit and, and how different it feels as a, you know, like zigzagging around this, you know, pre-internet landscape throughout Europe and you know, trying to make sense of global events like the massacre at Tiananmen Square. You know, when you're sitting in a restaurant in Germany and you don't speak German and there's yes. no internet, you, you know, you're, you're not following news updates on your phone. Um, it must so, be very, yeah, because now we can look at Google Earth and we can have a real sort of do a bit of research. But in those days, it's a bit like, you, you know, we used to have, I don't know, I find a few of my sort of, I don't know, notepads and you know just lots of scribbles and lots of little addresses and phone numbers and you know it was all very on bits of paper wasn't it stuffed in your pocket and in yeah. your paper you know it was very strange so when you were you know like 21 and about to sort of tour Europe did it feel quite surreal and, and a bit of a like this is a dream because because obviously having been to America quite a few times it's quite a long gig isn't it to get over over to uh, yeah, yeah. one way or the other and you feel quite knackered and you feel like yeah. a few days of you know waking up in random hours feeling like yep that's really handy it's two in the morning I'm wide awake now so how did you but then you're young aren't you and it's all very exciting oh it's all very exciting and all you have to do is play for you know 60 minutes at the end of the day so you know uh I it was it, it's funny that it coincided with finishing college for me, you know, which is sort of like the end of your education, because I feel that like being on the ground and being in a different city every night, you know, for, for 35 nights in a row, more or less, um, was such an uh, unbelievable education and contrasted so sharply with an education that was otherwise defined by, you know, being in a library and writing and <laughs> attending classes and things like that, you know. Um, I don't know, sometimes people joke about things like, you know, like graduate of the school of the night and stuff like that, you know, like school of hard knocks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, no, I, I, found, I found it an incredible education, both in, in terms of um, exploding whatever stereotypes that I had about um, different cities and different countries and um, being exposed to a range of musics that were sort of at the periphery of this, you know, experimental rock uh, scene. So, you know, suddenly I'm exposed to quite a lot of 
experimental music and free jazz and electronic music and all all of the stuff that again is just sort of like the border of you know or, or at the edges of the musical culture that that we were part of i mean we were still kind of like a noisy rock band yes um but uh but you had these opportunities 35 nights in a row you know like for people to play music for you or or you know to like educate you about um you know ab about kinds of music that otherwise otherwise would never yes i mean uh, would, you must have never got to appear on your radar and you must have got to meet a lot of different people who were sort of randomly coming up to you did you during that stage i mean this is probably a romantic idea but the reality might be different because you're with the band and you're traveling and you're doing that did it give you an opportunity to start making new music that you would sort of thought, well, actually, while we're here and we've got the time, shall we start to put the next album together? No, that's such a dream. Uh, <laughs> that, that, but that was much more the case with Gastrodal Soul, which was the next group that I was in after Bastro, because Gastrodal Soul, unlike Bastro, was kind of premised on this idea of, you know, a core, small core group of either two or three people and it was very open to on a project by project or show by show basis, uh, playing with other people, collaborating with other musicians. Yeah. Uh, but um, no, but you know, Bastro was like a well-drilled ensemble that um, it, it was it was not uh, it was not something that was so open to the idea of like experimenting and like oh we've got all of this time on the road, but with with Gastrodal Soul. Um, particularly when it was Jim O'Rourke and me touring as a duo, there, there was a tremendous amount of time to like play, you know, uh, play with different musicians in different cities at different shows, you know, to have guest people kind of like uh, augment the ensemble. Yes. Uh, or, or also, yeah, to be writing and recording all along the way. Which is a great way to be. That's an incredible way to, to work. Yes, well, I remember just... Yeah, just getting distracted myself there. But I remember, you know, being obsessed with David Bowie. Thankfully, that was my first single was Space Oddity and my first album mm. was Changes One. And then, you know, over the decades, you know, sort of became much more obsessed with him and everything and looked at his 70s work, you know, and I realised he brought an album out a year, produced, you know, E-pop, Blue Reed, relocated in various places. And and when he was doing Aladdin Sane, I think when he was touring Ziggy Stardust, he was writing Aladdin Sane and went straight in, did that. And you're thinking, I'm not quite sure how one person could, having so many plates to be spinning, manage to keep that going without mm -hmm. it all falling apart while taking a phenomenal amount of drugs as well. Which yeah. is quite, quite <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like you look back and you think, Actually, no one else has ever done managed to do such a sort of, and and sort of so many different styles from his folky world to glam world to sort of soul to really avant-garde stuff within a small space of time. But when, mm -hmm. but as I mentioned earlier, with the, with my love of the Smiths and indie pop, sort of eighty three to eighty seven was definitely a, a sort of a period where jingly jangly pop was certainly in the UK was kind of quite a thing. And then ecstasy came along around eighty seven, eighty eight time. And I realized that when the Smiths broke up, so did Husker do. God, was mm -hmm. I depressed. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there was definitely a shift of music because in this country, suddenly the music papers were like, right, that's the end of that scene. And mm -hmm. a lot of them wanted the next kind of that, that dance fusion of the Happy Mondays and yeah. Primal Scream, Stone Roses, and also the Soup Dragons and, and various other dance stuff that was coming in from Chicago. Chicago. Did you, were you sort of also picking up on those kind of influences? Because obviously that, there was a kind of a treat, a funny period that sort of late 80s and early 90s because you had you had obviously Seattle you know the grunge scene and then you had that kind of real explosion and then after that you know you had a bit of shoegazing with people like Lush and My Bloody Valentine and then it kind of then gets a bit odd and then Britpop comes along so so what was how were you sort of coping with that kind of musical change you know going on so much yeah I uh so I I would say that things like happy Mondays and Stone Roses from, you know, like from my perspective really left me cold. Like, I mean, just in listening to the recordings and never seeing them live and not really having a sense of what, you know, what, what there was beyond the, the records. Um, it, yeah, kind of mystified me really like <laughs> didn't, didn't leave an impression. Uh, yes, you know, absolutely. like I tried, I tried. Uh, also in 1990, I moved to Chicago um, when, when Bastro was happening. And uh, 
I felt like that that was a time where it seemed like all of my roommates worked at Reckless Records in Chicago. And uh, that that was a time of just like massive schooling on, you know, kinds of music that I didn't really, that I, you know, that I hadn't um, really like gone deep into yet. So, you know, uh, whether, whether it was like jazz or dub reggae or electronic music or improvised music or things like that. Um, I, where, whereas, for example, the years like 84 to 86, like I could tell you a record that came out every month. Yes. Then, and uh, maybe like 89 to 91 or 92, I, f I feel like I was an omnivore, you know, like I was just like plowing through like stacks after stacks of records. Um, Bundy K. Brown, who was in Gastrodal Soul and, and Bastro and Tortoise, was my roommate for a couple of years and worked at Reckless Records. And just like every day he would come home, you know, like he could just borrow records from the store, usually like used records. And I think, you know, essentially he could just like sign out records. So, you know, like every day it would be five records that I needed to, I, I don't know, it, it's funny hearing myself describe it, it sounds like I needed to learn, you know, like it feels very um, uh, like it was a, um, a course of study that I was setting for yeah, myself. So it, doesn't it, like an it wasn't so much like that, like hearing me describe it, it sounds like that. Um, but yeah, that, that was just a, a period of really like listening to a tremendous amount of recorded music that I hadn't heard before. Yes. And, you know, and, and far beyond the sphere, the sphere of like in indie post-punk music. That, did you, did you feel, the, did you feel yourself being much more of a sort of, an artist than just a musician did 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 you start to realize that you had a bit more curiosity whereas a lot of bands you know in a way when Huskadoo broke up as an example you mm -hmm. kind of felt that you know and the same with the Smiths you felt like unless they were going to do a David Bowie and do something really radical the next album was going to be quite similar and in a way you think actually I'm probably fine even though you're my favorite band I love you so much and it's going to be really sad that you'll break up I realize I'm probably not bothered if you're going to bring out another album which is going to be <laughs> slightly similar which yeah, yeah. you feel really bad to say that but you just think you know you kind of unless you do you know unless you do your low album which I often think about the low album because I think until someone's done that well, blimey you know you you've really like well you've really done something so you did you do you did you feel like a bit of a restless soul in the musical world uh, I did, but but I also saw kindred spirits, um, and and not only you know David Bowie or Prince or people like that reinventing themselves, even at a much much smaller level. Like for example, a group that meant a lot to me is the Red Crayola, who I, I played with for about ten years, um, who always were reinventing themselves. And I remember Mayo Thompson referring to the Red Crayola as a non-membership organization. You know that that <laughs> like that somehow the Red Crayola was like more than the than its cast of characters right and uh and it wasn't it it didn't rely on um yeah a fixed membership or you know if members were coming and going you know they were never really members in the first place you know they were all just sort of like participants in the red crayola and that and that's why you know all of the red crayola records just seemed so different from that's one quite another interesting. And, i mean did it feel like it much more of an art experiment an artistic kind of the the red the red Crayola certainly did. I mean, I I didn't go to art school. I I taught at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for a number of years. So like, I it's funny. I I feel like I've had all kinds of um, like substitute art school experiences. So like <laughs> teaching at one for a while, um, but also when when I was in the Red Crayola, it seemed like half the people who were involved with the Red Crayola at the time were visual artists, and you know Mayo had collaborated with with the conceptual art group art and language and had worked worked for Robert Rauschenberg and uh you know seemed to be the group seemed to be kind of a toast of the art world at different points in time so yeah I mean that playing in the Red Crayola was was my kind of like ground level introduction to a lot of what was happening in contemporary visual art yeah. so so yeah so so mu music on on the one hand like music seems like yeah like a very kind of limiting context for this but I think also I've just always had a very expansive view of music. Like I, I you know, 
I don't have this sense of like, oh, music is too small for what I want to do. You know, like <laughs> I need to be making films or writing books or something like that. Like I, I feel like music is the context uh, out of which most of the things that I do emerges. And, you know, and, and if it spills beyond what people recognize as, as like standard, you know, operating procedure for the music business, that's fine. <laughs> but, but I, but I've never had this sense of like, Oh, you know, like music is too small of a world. I, I need to, I need to escape this because yes. I, ne- I feel like I never really participated in, in, in a musical world where I, where what I did was defined by like one signature style and, and that I, you know, followed along expectations of like a conventional career path or, you know like I feel like I just I never really did those things yeah because it's kind of interesting recently I've done quite a few interviews with people who were part of that kind of late 70s early 80s kind of New York punk scene who were part of playing at the mud club and CBGB's and Max's Kansas City and a lot of those kind of new no wave bands that Brian Eno sort of titled them and put that compilation I mean they were probably veering more towards art than being musicians but became musicians in the process and continued some of them with the, with the musical world but there was a lot of experimentation as well that went on so there wasn't just like let's play these chords and be like just a conventional band like the monkeys or you know just yeah I mean I mean I know the Sex Pistols were fantastically influential but at the same time musically it was quite standard music wasn't it there was nothing right that radically different when you listen when you really listen to it now with decades you know it's it doesn't even seem that radical it seems exciting but it's like but it's actually quite a conventional sound that they made even though it was full of anger and and uh, of its moment so I was wondering if that was kind of where you were sort of veering because you then sort of go into a a kind of a big career of solo material don't you Mm -hmm. and I just wondered how that sort of felt when you were did did you feel that being within a band difficult not difficult but you know sometimes dynamics and having to deal with you know numerous relationships and friendships quite tricky yeah I mean it was certainly time to like make some records by myself (laughs) you know all so much of this and I and I think that this is true like of different cities and scenes at different times so much of this stuff happens because uh there's the support of record labels or you know one one lives uh, in a, a in a city where there's a community of musicians where there's like such a healthy uh, uh, you know sense of collaboration or feedback. Uh, when I when I was first making solo records, I was in Chicago, so I was in Chicago from ninety to ninety nine. Very easy to remember. I was in Chicago <laughs> from the nineties, uh, and then moved to New York after that. Um, but I you know I've been making records for the for Drag City since the early 90s, since maybe 92. And um, it just, it um, in this question of like, of suddenly starting to make solo records after Gastrodal Soul, all of that happened because of Drag City. I mean, in some, in some ways, Gastrodal Soul unfo- unfolded the way that it did also because of the support of Drag City. Um, and just knowing that this, that this was a label that encouraged experimentation encouraged people, um, you know, working in different constellations of musicians with each record, you know, like that, I don't know, I felt like that's the kind of thing that I got great feedback from that, like that really excited them when I would tell them like, okay, for the next record, like the following people are going to be on it. Right. Uh, as, as, as As opposed to this more conventional idea of like, you know, you need to really put together, you know, like a tight working group. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just look at all of these, you know, people on Drag City, like Will Oldham and Bill Callahan or the Red Crayola. Like it's a, you know, it's a different ensemble, um, you know, different a different cast of characters for each of these records. In some ways, I think that that's one of the things that um, it. Drag City's released like 600 records at this point. It's it's hard to find a through line, but right. um, but that that kind of experimentation around songwriters or you know like or a kind of like recognizable musical voice that with each record is put into a different you know like a a, a different um, constellation of musicians. Yes, um, and that's that's quite an amazing 
uh, project to be, well, not project, but you know, that's kind of an amazing organization to be able to, it's almost like having a philanthropy, isn't it? a philanthropist sort of help yeah, yeah. you sort of go through this process. Because a lot of musicians, it is the recording process and it is kind of getting the studio and it is getting the producer and it is trying to get the sound that you really want and getting that encouragement. Because a lot of times, you know, that's that plays such a sort of massive part in making an album that you had a good experience and probably had a good result with as well. So, right. so, the, so the producer is such a key part of all this recording process as well. And I just wondered how you had managed to sort of navigate that world. You know, I n navigated it by um, never really having a producer. Like I remember in in the early 90s having these conversations with Steve Albini about like, what does a producer do? You know, like <laughs> there's an engineer and there are artists and, uh, you, you know, like we we had this vague idea. And I, and I think that Steve also had this attitude that like he had as an engineer been in so many sessions where producers are usually you know 10 years older than the musicians and have a bit more experience and a bit of a name for themselves and they push the musicians around and really like put their stamp on the project and um yeah that's so foreign to me i just i have no idea and <laughs> i, I th in some ways i feel like i've never worked with a producer before that everything's self-produced and and why wouldn't it be you know like <laughs> uh and and unless unless you're really looking for a particular stamp or a particular sound you know it's, it's like you know uh people went to phil specter to get a particular sound um um but in in my case i i feel that if i had something like that in mind in advance, perhaps I would go to a particular engineer or work in a particular studio. Um, but I've always worked out my own arrangements. And I, yeah, the idea, the idea of a producer is very strange. Yes. I don't know, do you, think, do you think it's more of a British thing though? Because I, I do sort of feel like with Bastro or Gastro del Sol, like being in the UK, people would ask more like, you know, like, what producers do you like? What producers would you like to work with? And, you know, it was a little bit like, I don't know, we just make records ourselves with engineers. Right. Well, it's interesting because recently I've done quite a lot of interviews with producers, you know, and um, and I've also a few musicians who have said things that were quite interested in saying, you know, we worked, you know, three albums with, you know, this producer, it was all going well. Then they decided they wanted a different sound and possibly, I suppose, chase a sort of like, you know the record company giving them a bit of pressure saying look you know we need a we need to shake this up and then you know the producer comes in on the first day saying something that just made everyone think oh dear this isn't going to be good this isn't i'm not feeling good about this and the album not really working and you know not yeah. ending well so it, it is quite of interest and then you know i've done a few interviews with producers who've said things like i'd rather not talk about that experience it's like <laughs> okay you know. yeah yeah <laughs> I, you know, I always ask Mayo Thompson because he and he pr produced a lot of records, uh, many of which were done together with Jeff Travis. So like er, so many of the early Rough Trade records were Mayo and, and Jeff Travis. In some ways, I, I my assumption is that they were unlike most producers, you know, that they that they didn't give a strong musical stamp and probably what what they brought to it was, you know, bring out what they thought was already best in the group and you know like to you know to to help the group be more itself yeah it's right? interesting rather, rather was, than to professionalize them i suppose it's become a bit of a thing i don't know if it is the uk but it definitely does mention because people go on about the, the, the great martin hannett who did right worked in a particular studio in rochdale especially i can't remember which one it was called but um you know he did the joy division stuff and i remember hearing members of joy division being quite disappointed when they heard the playback going oh, actually we don't really like that and martin you know had a you know this is what you're going to sound like and it's like yeah. and they went with it and it's like joy division yeah. and it's a bit like oh okay so you know the producer obviously did have a big influence in creating that sound because from stephen morris the drummer mm -hmm. you know he didn't sort of i think they were a bit flat went, mm, i'm not sure about this one i don't think we've got a good producer and um yeah i suppose it is it's kind of an interesting one and i remember doing an interview with fast eddie from motorhead and they did their first two albums. It was with a particular person that went well. The third album, for some unknown reason, 
oh yeah, filthy Taylor, you know, got into a fight with the producer, so he wouldn't work with the band. So they said, look, Eddie, you know, you can do this. And, and he said, you know, it just didn't work having a member of the band trying to produce this out the third album with the two other members of Motorhead you know it was a disaster so it, it kind of it, there wasn't a sort of a, a, a sort of person who was objective around the studio it was kind of him trying to push the other two who weren't really into it so I can see you know that's where I I was kind of curious with the producer you know how you've managed to navigate that. Mm -hmm. I you know for me it's a it has been a fairly ideal situation to have band members engineer the sessions right so john mcintyre engineered a number of bastro and gastro del sol sessions and jim o'rourke engineered almost all of the gastro del sol sessions and that that was great but i mean i understand in the example of motorhead like perhaps they needed a mediator or an outside <laughs> force right you know that you need to keep these as separate kinds of conversations but yeah. uh, you know i for, for me it, it's always it's always been fantastic to to have um, a fellow musician have uh, real engineering know-how yes. because you know because then it's just that much easier to to communicate the ways in which the musical ideas might be realized as recordings. Yeah, I mean, just lastly on that, it was quite interesting. There was another guy, Mark Saunders, who. Um, started in the 80s and then he got given to do the farm you know and they came in they did their kind of guitar bits and everything and went off to the pub and he thought god this sounds a bit bad so he sort of he did he he kind of got the guitar and he did that kind of a particular rhythm which was their kind of massive hit and they you know he you know when they came back from the pub he said look i've been messing around with this track what do you think of this and instead of just the indie guitar he sort of broke it up so it was much more rhythmic and they went yeah this is great we like this we'll go with this and that that kind <laughs> of creates this massive anthem and it's a bit like yeah, that wasn't the band really it was yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can uh, see you can see this kind of influence that band you know the producer can have which is quite interesting because because yeah. obviously it wouldn't have had that i don't know if you ever heard it where the trogs were in the studio this was in the 60s and um and they're obviously struggling and they keep swearing at each other going put some fairy dust on the fucking thing and uh you know i don't know it's a classic it's a, one of those famous recordings yeah, 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 yeah. and uh you know and obviously the producers having to sort of try and work this band because he's thinking they've probably not got much and i'm gonna have to they're kind of looking at me to do something here but they're right. artistic so it's kind of an interesting one isn't it yeah <laughs> so, absolutely so so look just briefly then but then you or men, you know, you, you sort of complement your sort of musical world with being a lecturer as well, which must be an ideal situation. It really, it yes, it, it really is an ideal situation. I'm, so I've been a full-time university professor at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York uh, for 15 years. So that's, that's my day job. And uh, it's a great day job. You know, like I, I teach music, uh, I teach creative writing, I teach in an interdisciplinary arts program called Performance in Interactive Media Arts. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like this sort of facilitates so much musical activity and activity as a writer. Um, yeah. And, and does it help that you can just kind of completely focus so much on music even if it's with helping others as well as thinking oh actually there's also you know because it, it's in the same environment isn't it uh it is yeah no no I, I i mean i certainly know plenty of people like i could give the example of drew daniel who's in the band matmos who uh is a shakespeare scholar uh so i mean like me he's a university professor has a full-time job uh um, but the, those are completely different spheres that he works in, you know, like when, when he's teaching Shakespeare, it's very, you know, like it has nothing to do, it probably has nothing to do with, with the music that, you know, that he might be working on later that evening. Where, whereas I, yes, I, I definitely feel a kind of continuity and that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like what I do in terms of music is some sort of like double life, you know, like, you know, in, Every once in a while, you know, there will be some article about like a university professor who, you know, 
in their spare time, you know, had the secret life as a composer or something like that. You know, like, no, I feel like that there's real continuity in, in what I do. And mm. I, I never I never imagined that that would be that, the, the case. So I, I have a PhD in English and I studied poetry and um, I sort of assumed for a long time that probably I would be a college professor, te you know, teaching American literature um, and that that would facilitate my being able to do music. Um, uh, but yeah, no, but I had never really expected that kind of continuity. Which is amazing. And you also- Yeah, no, it's very welcome. And two published books as well, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, you know, I mean, do you, when you look back, I mean, would your 18 year old self be absolutely amazed at where, you know, your older self ended up? Um, I, I mean, I think that there was no, no way to imagine where I would end up. But I think, you know, my, I think my 18 year old self imagined that I would always be making music and that, I, you know, likely I would be uh, writing novels or I would be a college professor. You know, it would be it would be something having to do with writing and education and literature that that would probably be part of, you know, like part part of the mix. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, the last solo album was Creepin' Mission, wasn't it? Uh-huh. And yes. so what have you got? Have you got anything lined up? Because this has obviously been become the most peculiar year ever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, have you, has this given you an opportunity to sort of think about what, what happens next? You know, I've been really focused this year on writing. So I, I had, um, when, when everything shut down, you know, all touring was canceled. Uh, I've had two, two records forthcoming. One is a duo record with Taku Nami, who's a Japanese musician I've played with a lot. That came out this past summer. Um, and then in January, there's a trio record with Mats Gustafsson and Rob Mazurik um, from live recordings uh, in Europe this past January. But, um, but no, the real focus for me has, has been working on this, this book, Goodnight, the Pleasure Was Ours, um, oh which is al almost finished. You know, like oh. there's a completed manuscript and I'm just kind of revising at this point. Um, but no, that, that's been a kind of godsend in this otherwise stressful and shitty year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinarily stressful right now in the US with this election coming up and, you know, it's just like, yeah. Yes, yeah, I could imagine. So just briefly on the book um, that you just mentioned there. So this is your touring years for how many, you know, from the beginning to the, up to when? Uh, it more or less describes an arc of about 30 years. Uh, uh, one, I mean, it's a book length poem. Like, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to parse like exactly where you are and exactly when it is at, at certain, for certain stretches of the book. Um, but uh, I, I would, I, by my reckoning, it begins in 1989 and, and ends at the present moment. Blimey, that's amazing. Yeah. So look, just brief, I mean, I've almost, you know, almost answered it. But I often ask people, you know, what would you say to an 18-year-old self starting out? So if you could have said something to yourself or just anything, <laughs> what wisdom have you picked up over the decades that you would think, God, there is something that I would have told myself, which I've learned. Yeah. Because, you know, there's often e something you think, yeah, I wish Easy, easy. Don't, don't overly specialise and don't foreclose on your options. I mean, sometimes I think, so when, when I moved to Chicago, it was to do graduate school in liter literature, and I took a semester off to tour with Bastro, and I remember um, meeting with the, the chair of the English department, uh, who was just sort of like, um, his attitude was, okay, like maybe this one time, but, you know, like you have to get serious, like you, you know, like you you have to choose this as your career your profession and you you know like you can't be a dilettante you can't you can't be a musician and you know like a, a scholar or a professor or something like that you know i you know he was sort of i was probably 22 years old and i just remember him sort of shaming me like how much longer are you going to do this it's like well 30 years later i i mean i when when i was talking about the what I do as a professor, um, having this kind of 
wonderful continuity with what I do as a musician and a, and a writer, it all happened because, you know, like I didn't, I didn't give up music to be a professor. Or I, you know, I didn't give up academia, you know, to do music exclusively. I, you know, like it just kind of like, I, 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 I found it so rewarding to do all of these different things simultaneously. Yeah, uh, you know, and and I and I never made those sorts of hard decisions, you know, those hard, somewhat arbitrary decisions that I think people feel, you know, that that's the adult thing to do, you know, you know. Uh, well, do you sort of feel? I mean, just lastly, I mean, do you feel a bit, you know, as we have the you know, um, I suppose the awareness of looking at other people, you know, and mentioned David Bowie in the sense that he did try a lot of different things. He went in lots of different directions, but obviously when you're one of the first people doing it, it probably feels a bit scary, but you obviously can sort of look at other people from the past and think, oh, well, actually I could do that. And that, you know, and accept, well, actually I am an artist and I am a musician and I can experiment. I don't have to feel so constrained so do you you know i mean did did was there a moment in your life where you just thought no i'm i'm going to be able to do that you know i can just do more than just one thing you know the big moment for me was this transition from bastro you know which as i say was like this very rehearsed very tight three-piece group to gastrodel soul and also at the red crayola the red crayola which i was playing in at the time where yeah the, this this idea of like really reimagining what a group or musical collaboration could be like that you know that it didn't have to be this strict uh ent entity you know with it with its unchanging membership yes. um yeah in, in, in some ways that was the most revelatory moment for me yeah and and i guess as well it feels a lot freer that you don't suddenly think god I'm, I'm with these group of three or four other people and that already you know there's there's often tensions that happen whereas if you have some fluidity you know in a sort of creative group or any group it can feel much more relaxing to a degree you know yeah. just a little bit there you go yep. <laughs> more than a little bit <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yes yeah. i know anyway look thank you ever so much david this has been amazing thank you for yeah. your time and sure. uh, really appreciate it where are you uh, where are you at the moment uh in brooklyn in brooklyn, in brooklyn new york yeah you did yeah i think you mentioned actually the reception's been good because sometimes in new york it can be a bit hit and miss yeah i'm you know i'm giving a talk as part of the tusk festival on wednesday so i'm i'm hoping that the wi-fi here yeah will cooperate yeah, no, it's been perfect. I have sometimes had real problems with New York, which is kind of bizarre because you always think it's going to be like, ding. Yeah. anyway, look, have a great year. Yeah, let, let me know when the when the podcast is ready and uh, I'll help to spread the word. Yeah, I definitely will. I'll send you a link. And um, yes, best of luck for the year. OK, let's, let's hope we Thanks can again. celebrate. OK, bye. See you later. And that is the end of the interview, just in case you didn't gather that, um, with David Gr Grubbs from various bands, as we mentioned during that interview. A uh, massive thank you to David. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. And also, these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>